back, everyone. This is Sam. And this is Corrine, and we are two OncDocs. Today's episode, we're covering 2023 updates for metastatic bladder cancer. We are so excited to have Dr. Tom Pallas and Dr. Brian Rennie again for this urolo- from the Urologic Oncology Podcast, Amigos. We introduced them in last week's episode, but they are truly pioneers in the field of urologic oncology. Definitely. That's Thank nice. you guys so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And so we'll first cover our regimen options for metastatic urothelial bladder cancer. So what is part of the staging for suspected metastatic cancer? So you will do a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, and then consider a bone scan if there's clinical suspicion for bone metastases. I think, um, Tom, you mentioned in last week's episode that there's not really a role for PET scans um, at this point in time in bladder cancer. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and, and are, you, are you sending NGS for initial initial diagnosis as well for metastatic urothelial? Look, I think right now, I think it's reasonable to do that in the US because there's always an option in the future. Erdofitinib, as I see, it's kind of a, a pre-treated drug. So individuals who've had platinum-based chemotherapy and immune therapy uh, and maybe an ADC or an ADC combination, which we'll talk about in a second. I think erdofitinib is one of those kind of later line drugs, which uh, is reasonable. And, and you may as well know early on. So there's no harm in doing that, but I certainly would start therapy. I tend to do it during what has been kind of the maintenance period of chemotherapy. So I don't think it's urgent you to do it up front and you get it back on cycle three or cycle four of chemotherapy. Um, I'm not a fan of pdl one expression. There's no role of pdl one expression in advanced disease. So you don't need to look at pdl one expression. And I think other bits and pieces like tumor mutational burden and HER2 status, you know, they're all kind of hypothetically exciting. But I think from the day-to-day practice, I wouldn't be doing that. So I would just be getting on with treatment as quickly as possible. What's the most important thing in advanced urothelial cancer, particularly with visceral metastasis, is starting therapy. People drop pretty quickly. That's the problem with single-agent upfront immune checkpoint inhibition. For those patients in whom it does nothing, which is perhaps as much as 70%, the cancer's just growing. And when the cancer's growing in urothelial cancer, it's very hard to get back in control. Many patients never get to second-line therapy. And so starting therapy in a timely manner in advanced urothelial cancer is super important. Perfect. And so can we start talking about what our treatment options are for first-line metastatic urothelial bladder cancer? Yes. So when we lasted this episode about a year and a half ago, we had the standard, the standard was gemcitabine cisplatin or gemcitabine carboplatin, or in some cases, even docense MVAC for all those that are platinum eligible. And then for those that were platinum ineligible, you could consider single agent immunotherapy. And then for those that got platinum, if they had a stable disease or a response, you could consider adjuvant avelumab within four to 10 weeks of chemotherapy based on the Javelin 100 study, where there was a median overall difference of about 21.4 versus 14.3 months. But now since ESMO 2023, Dr. Powell's here discussed groundbreaking approvals from EV302 with very striking overall survival. And he received a standing ovation at ESMO, and this is likely to become the new first-line standard of care. So um, Tom, could you tell us, and Brian, you can interject whenever, but the mechanism of action of this regimen, the results, toxicity, and anything else in the first-line setting? So I think it's fair to say that we've been using chemotherapy, GEMSYS or GEMCARBO, and maintenance of Valimab as a standard of care. Um, I think it's fair to say that over the last 40 years, we've tried very hard to replace that, and we haven't done that successfully despite multiple efforts. Um, and um, 
we know single-agent pembrolizumab is associated with durable remissions in subgroups of patients, uh, and we've been using it in heavily pre-treated patients at the moment. Um, but we also know um, that infortumabidotin, as a single agent, has a lot of activity. It's an antibody drug conjugate, which targets nectin-4. It has MMAE as a payload. Um, as a single agent therapy in advanced pre-treated patients, it has a response rate of 40%, which is higher than you kind of would expect probably for any other single agent. I think that's probably a fair comment. Some people might say cisplatin might be higher. I'm not sure that's the case, to be honest. Um, so I think it's the best single agent drug we have, but it has the same problem as all the other drugs is it doesn't have the durability we'd like. Um, John Rosenberg and, and others, um, um, how looked in the frontline setting in a phase two study um, in cisplatin ineligible patients and showed response rates of about 68%. Um, and uh, the um, that's much higher than standard chemotherapy, more like 45%. And so uh, we did a randomized phase three of EV Pembro um, to try and reproduce those results. Um, and we went against GEMSYS or GEMCARBO chemotherapy 30% of patients in the control arm got maintenance of valumab. That's actually not a bad proportion. Um, the results were really striking. The hazard ratio for um, progression-free survival was 0.45 and OS was 0.47. So OS, so PFS translated directly into OS, kind of suggesting there's something unusual going on between the two agents. Um, it worked across broad subgroups of patients. Response rates was 68%. CR rates were 30%. Um, there was durability of response. The adverse event profile requires particular attention because um, it's different. It's not more toxic than chemotherapy. In fact, the grade three or four adverse events were 70% for chemotherapy and 55% for valumab. But um, it causes peripheral neuropathy and skin rash, which requires education and training. I've used the combination quite a lot, as you can imagine. And, uh, and my feeling is it's a regime that I can give easily. Um, you know, you need to see the patients on a regular basis but I'm comfortable with the toxicity profile. Um, I think that when you look at subsequent therapy, 68% of patients got subsequent immune therapy on the control arm and progress, which is a high proportion. And so overall, we're sort of, it's a very tight data set. It doesn't have that many flaws. I think, I think it's transformative and obviously a huge number of people um, take enormous credit um, for what happened. Three sponsors were involved in the trial, thousands of investigators, tens of thousands of patients. Um, and it's been a long journey to beat frontline chemotherapy, but we've done it really conclusively now. And I think this will set the standard for some time to come. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, absolutely, it's the standard of care and it's it's pretty broadly applicable. I don't know what you think, Tom. I mean, I don't know that there's too many patients that I see frontline bladder in clinic that I think just couldn't get this regimen. Now, you may dose modify and all, you know, like you normally would for any sort of chemo type based regimen, but I think it's going to be pretty broadly applicable. I think a couple things. One is there have been other trials of combining Gemsys, Gemcarbo with chemo that were not successful. So as Tom said, there's clearly something different about either this ADC in particular, you know, or ADCs in general and combining with immune therapy. I'm not sure we know exactly what that is. In fact, I'm sure we don't, but clinically the data speaks for itself. Um, but the other chemo immune therapy trials, you know, didn't when it was expected that they would show benefit, really didn't. And this kind of came out of the blue and showed benefit. So um, it is going to be, it is the standard of care. It's approved in the US. It was, it had been approved, I think, accelerated approval for platinum and eligible, like in April or something like that. So, so it's already been in use. And now I think 
you know, the whole field has sort of been reorganized, you know, as we think about algorithms and guidelines and, and clinical drug development, right? If you're developing drugs in this space, either frontline or refractory, you're going to need to take this into account. Right. And so I think moving from first line treatment in the metastatic advanced setting to talking about what are our second line options for this disease process. Um, Corinne, can you start us off and then, you know, Brian and Tom jump in? Yes. So in the past, when we were talking about first line platinum, um, if there was progression, you know, before we had that maintenance of Elamab, we had pembrolizumab, but we really don't know what the standard is going to be second line post EV pembro. Um, not sure, Brian and Tom, what your thoughts are in this space. I mean, it's, you know, just like any setting, it's sort of, well, what's left, right? I mean, chemotherapy, sort of standard chemotherapy, I think will have a role. Um, obviously we'll see what the data shows and how well patients can tolerate, say, a cisplatin-based regimen post-EV Pembro. We talked about FGF inhibition with erdofitinib, which is obviously a nice option for the 10 to 15% of patients who have relevant alterations. Um, Sazituzumab govitecam, right? Another ADC, which I think as a single agent is probably a little less active than EV, you know, cross-trial comparisons and whether there'll be sequential, um, ADC activity, I think, is something that uh, has yet to be seen. Um, I guess it's the same with other immune therapy. We haven't really seen benefit with sequential immune therapy and other diseases. So I think it's, you know, everything that's that's sort of left behind after a patient's gotten an ADC and an immune therapy. So I'm kind of, uh, I agree. I agree, Brian. What are, what are my background thoughts on this? The immediate survival of, um, I think when I think when the data is mature, I think, EV Pambro is going to come out about 36 months when you look at the shape of that curve. It might be, you know, it's currently 31, but I think that when you look at the shape of the curve, it's probably going to end up more like 35 months. And progression-free survival, probably 12 to 14 months. So there is a significant period um, after progression. And now there are two really important parts to that. The first is many patients are getting really deep responses. And progression by resist point one is not traditional progression as patients see it, in that the cancer can have a big reduction and then can progress 20% from the nadir and still be a lot lower than baseline, still under relatively good control. So I think this issue around, you know, when patients progress, their cancer's worse than when they started. I don't think patients really have got their head around that might not be the case. So many of my patients who progressed on EV Pembro progressed in small lymph nodes with a few millimeters here and a few millimeters there from a deep response. But that means there is, you know, from that 12-month period to that 36 months, there's two years after progression on EV Pembro. Coming back to what Brian said previously, you know, is there something unusual going on between these drugs? It's unusual for a PFS advantage to translate directly into an OS advantage. You know, we, we, there's normally some dilution associated with subsequent therapy. And we didn't see too much of that. Now, you might say we didn't have a huge amount of antibody drug conjugate use in EV302, and that's true. But at the same time, it does suggest to us that there is this significant subsequent period. I think rechallenge with platinum-based chemotherapy is the current standard of care. I'm not completely obsessed with GEM-CIS. I think GEM-CARBO is a perfectly uh, adequate uh, second-line treatment for these patients. I think we haven't seen enough sasituzumab data globally to say confidently that this is as good as GEM-CIS or GEM-CARBO currently. And I think the same to some extent applies with erdofitinib FGF altered patients, although there is a positive randomized phase three study versus chemotherapy, the Thor study in cohort one. But remember the cohort two of the Thor study when erdofitinib in FGFR altered patients went against immune therapy, pembrolizumab, had a hazard ratio of 1.1. So there's still a lot of grayness around these drugs that we're using in the subsequent space. I think if a patient has an FGFR alteration, 
The temptation is to still give erlafitinib, but I think second line after EV Pembroke, platinum-based chemotherapy is a standard of care. Right. And so when we're thinking about subsequent line treatments, I know the boards loves to ask us about toxicities. Um, so Kareen, can you briefly tell us about toxicities with some of these um, medications, including enfortimab, erdofitinib, and sastituzumab? Yeah. So with enfortimab, um, Tom mentioned the mechanism of action and some of the toxicity, but uh, some clinicians may consider baseline eye exams for patients. There also is a risk of hyperglycemia and diabetic ketoacidosis. So the original trial excluded patients, I think with an AA1C above eight, Uh, also a very high rate of neuropathy. So that's one of the reasons that patients often have to get dose reduced. Um, And then the dermatologic toxicity, as Tom mentioned. And then for erdofitinib, which is our pan-FGFR inhibitor, we know that patients can have a high phosphate and sometimes need phosphate binders. They can also have stomatitis, hyponatremia, risk of retinal pigment epithelium detachment, and um, clinicians may also consider baseline eye exams for those patients. And then sasituzumab, which was mentioned, and something that's also heavily tested is mechanism of action of these drugs. So this is a trope-2-directed antibody drug conjugate um, to topoisomerase, and this can often cause myelosuppression, GI side effects, hyperglycemia. Uh, anything else, Brian, Tom? No, I think, I think you covered it. I mean, again, these are relatively new drugs, you know, and certainly as they get, you know, approved and these regimens get approved, they'll get in common practice. But as Tom said, it's not, it's not more toxic than chemo. It's just different. Right. And that's mm-hmm. kind of part of the fun of oncology and drug development, right. As these new drugs come on, there's a, there's a learning curve to giving drugs. And so I think everything you mentioned is right on. And, um, now with the sort of great clinical data, obviously we're motivated to to give them efficiently, right? To keep keep patients on therapy. Definitely. And so, what other subtypes of urothelial carcinoma are there, and how are they treated? So you can have urothelial carcinoma of the renal pelvis or the ureter. Know that these upper tract cancers are often associated with Lynch syndrome, also known as hereditary non polyposis colon cancer syndrome. Um, we did have a question, and this is kind of mean for non-urologists, on urethral carcinoma in situ, and the answer, I believe, was uh, distal urethrectomy. Um, <laughs> and then for those upper tract um, cancers, um, the standard is nephrouretectomy, um, and there is a role for adjuvant chemo, either gemcis or gemcarbo, based on the PELT study, um, but there's been evolving role for neoadjuvant chemo. Anything else to add, Brian and Tom, on these subtypes? Yeah, I mean, upper tract's a, a different disease, right? It's obviously connected to the bladder, but I think biologically it's different. And I think we're getting more and more insight into that. Nephro-U, as you say, is how the, the cool kids say it. Nephro-U is the standard of care. And then usually neo, not much neoadjuvant therapy is given, right? The, the anatomy is such, you don't necessarily know if it's muscle invasive, et cetera. They just, they go to surgery and then they end up sort of in your office to talk about adjuvant therapy. You mentioned the PALT study, which was a UK study of GEMSYS or GEMCARBO. Uh, as adjuvant therapy, I think it was four cycles, right, Tom? It was four. Four that showed a, um, uh, a DFS advantage, but not an OS advantage. But I think is a is a standard of care in that setting. I think one clinically tricky, and I've I've actually asked Tom about this before. Do you have a, ris- a high risk resected upper tract? Do you give them four cycles of gemsys gemcarbo? Or do you give them adjuvant nivolumab? We talked about that in the last podcast. That adjuvant nevo. That study included upper tract, but if you look at the forest plot, I've, they, ap- I've apologized for that, Brian. Now, we, we yeah. always bring that up, but I've now apologized. They, they didn't seem to do as well <laughs> with adjuvant nevo. Again, they felt to be less immune responsive. That's a, a, a complex topic, but I think that's something that we face in clinic. I tend to give adjuvant chemo to those patients. I think that's right. I think in the upper tract disease, 
it's, it's, it's difficult. In upper tract urothelial cancer, I think the data for adjuvant chemotherapy is stronger than for adjuvant immune checkpoint inhibition. I think in both the subsets of 010 and 274, um, both those studies showed that the upper tract cohort did less well. There are other studies like Javelin 100, the metastatic study, and Keynote 45, the Pembroke trial, where the upper tract patients did fine with immune checkpoint, a bit better than with chemotherapy. So it's a really long discussion, but I think as it currently stands, it's entirely reasonable in the upper tract group to give adjuvant chemotherapy. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is more challenging because you often haven't got that kind of muscle invasive, that biopsy component to be confident about that. But some people prefer the neoadjuvant setting because the renal function is better. Those people tend to be those that are obsessed with cisplatin. And actually, it's not unreasonable to be obsessed with cisplatin in the neoadjuvant setting. But <laughs> it's not unreasonable. And so um, I'm OK with that. I'm OK with that. I think you're I think you're right, Brian. I think adjuvant chemotherapy rather than adjuvant immune checkpoint inhibition. EV Pembro, uh, the hazard ratio in upper tract disease was essentially the same as in bladder cancer. So EV Pembro looks really active in upper tract disease. And I think therefore it's going to be the standard of care in advanced disease. And I hope it's going to move into the perioptive setting in that space as well. Great. And so our last question before we wrap up. The is, last can we... question already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tom likes to do podcasts for like 40 minutes. So yeah, this is incredible. <laughs> this, is, this is a speed round. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's briefly talk about the less common histologic types of bladder cancer and how they are treated. Because Green and I, and we were just talking about this before we started recording, we got the question of urethral cancer um, on our boards. And it's pretty mean, but let, let's talk about them. Yeah. Who's yeah. making these board questions? And I know. Can I ask, what are the boards? <laughs> i think you have to apologize to our listeners for that <laughs> well brian I'm the stuck. answer for rcc was apparently the only answers were um single agent tki for the first line rc metastatic rcc yeah and i think i think that's the problem when you're studying for boards like you you know ed Pembro is not going to be on there right it takes no. a year plus so and sometimes you can know too much right you can right. You, you can know too much for those questions. Right. But this is still good to know clinically, um, you know, for fellows in clinic, you know, in 2023, mm -hmm. this is what we need to be doing. Um, so the basic principle for non-urothelial, uh, for localized non-urothelial is cystectomy. Um, Tom mentioned last week's episode, a squamous cell with that risk factor of schistosomiasis, uh, as well as chronic UTIs or chronic polycatheters. And for those you'll do cystectomy again, or you can consider radiation with 5-FU Taxol. For adenocarcinoma, there's no proven chemo role. It may be of uracal origin. And you may remember that the uracus from anatomy class in med school is the canal that exists when the fetus is developing before birth, running from the bladder of the fetus to the umbilicus or embolicus, as they say, perhaps in the UK. Um, and for metastatic adenocarcinoma, there's no standard chemo. You may consider some GI regimens like Fulfox, which is 5-FU oxaliplatin. Um, be aware of plasma cytoid variants being very aggressive. Um, they can have vague infiltrative processes seen on imaging, uh, peritoneal mets, and some are af affiliated with a CDH1 mutation. And then finally, small cell bladder cancer is treated like small cell lung cancer. So you'll do that cisplatin etoposide regimen or carboplatin etoposide. And then if it's metastatic, you may consider those two, those two drugs, uh, in addition to immunotherapy, um, any other pearls in these variant histologies, Brian and Tom? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we struggle as a field with variant histologies. As you say, they're rare. It depends on the aggressiveness of your pathologist. And it's often not pure, right? So it's often urothelial with 20% adeno or 10% squamous or what you know, some sort of percentage. And then you say, well, it's mostly urothelial. I'll treat them like that. But obviously, as, as that percentage creeps up, you feel less and less confident about the paradigms that we've talked about um, today and last time. So I think I think what you said is right. Small cell, where I am in the country, we see a fair amount of small cell. We you know, obviously treat it like small cell lung, just as you said, including as as. Are you confident? Are you confident about that, Brian? No. You know, no. you say, "Oh, this one needs a topicide. This is definitely a topicide patient." And you know, is that do we? Because I'm not sure about that, honestly. I you know I don't mind giving those patients gem cis, gem carbo, gem cis. I think is the right treatment. Probably gem cis is better than gem carbo. It's one of the questions I get referred most about, and the patient's obviously waiting for about six weeks to work out which chemotherapy regime to give. And again, it's one of those scenarios that's growing fast. I don't think there's a huge... I, we've never really done those studies in bladder cancer. Okay. Now, you might, it might be 1% better, it might be 5% better, but it's not like they was going to durable remission, the cancer never comes back. And, and I'm really happy giving a top aside. I think it's reasonable and we do it. But I don't think, you know, we haven't done a big randomized trial to show it's important. The way I look at this disease um, for the subgroups is I think that, you know, that neuroendocrine subgroup and the small cell subgroup does need particular attention. We tend not to put them into immune therapy studies, for example. And I think that would be the wrong thing to do. I think that you do get control with chemotherapy. And I think that um, that is a subgroup which requires particular attention. I've seen some patients have a spectacular response to immune checkpoint inhibition that subgroup, incidentally. I think the next group, which is worthwhile looking at and thinking about, is the sar- if you've got sarcomatoid components from urothelial, those patients, I think, should be getting immune therapy, and I think that's important. We're beginning to see that also. And the other two, squamous is the most important and the most common. And again, I don't think you need to go full fox and go down different regimes. I think you know, we haven't shown that. I don't think my experience, we've, of course, we've done that at our hospital. Um, and the outcome doesn't seem to be particularly good. And we haven't got lots of respective data to support it. So I think going down these personalized regimes without strong evidence, I think it's theoretically attractive, but I don't think pr- practically it's very important. I, I agree. I mean, we, we have small subsets, they're sort of path dependent. We we infer from other diseases, which is okay. And so I don't think it's wrong. But I, I think if your point is don't waste a whole lot of time because these patients just need to get to treatment, I agree. Great. And so this was an awesome episode on metastatic bladder cancer. And so what are our key takeaways for this episode? So we did talk about the groundbreaking enfortumab, pembrolizumab, first line regimen. However, as we mentioned, remember that the boards are out of date. So remember that original <laughs> sequence of platinum, cisplatinum, or carboplatin with gemcitabine followed by maintenance of elimab. And then if you didn't give elimab, consider pembrolizumab in the second line. Um, in the third line, you can consider infortumab or erdofitinib if you have FDFR alterations. And then beyond that, also sasituzumab and make sure to know mechanism of action and toxicities for these. Um, thank you so much, Brian and Tom, for joining us. Any final pearls for fellows? Well, I've learned a lot about the boards and they sound extremely difficult. And I'm, and I'm pleased. I'm really pleased I'm not doing them. I'm really pleased. I don't think you would pass. Let's put it I'm sure way. I would. I'm sure I would. I'm very confident it would go wrong. <laughs> Thanks for having us. We appreciate it.
Awesome. Thank you guys again for joining us for these two special episodes. Everyone, be sure to check out their podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts uh, for a deeper dive into all things GU Oncology. And as always, please feel free to reach out to us with corrections or comments on our Instagram or our Twitter, 2OncDocs. Have a great week.